You ready? We're going to continue in the series we started last decade. I know, that's a dad joke, but I'm a dad, I get to make those. Life starts now, and uh, we've been in this for the last 16 weeks, and today uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 9, so if you've got a Bible with you, invite that, uh, power up your, uh, your Bible app, or open your Bible to Mark chapter 9, we're in the New Testament, uh, second book of the New Testament, as we look at the life and ministry of Jesus. And starting at verse 2, Mark chapter 9. I know we've had a little chance to sit and rest, so I'm going to invite you to stand together with me for the reading of God's Word. If you're ever wondering about the Bible we use here, I typically use the New Living Translation. And we do make Bibles available for you to use during the service. They're also at... There you go. Thank you. All right. Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 2. Six days later... Uh, This is after uh, Jesus had taken his disciples uh, to Caesarea Philippi and Peter had recognized that Jesus is the Messiah and so on. Six days later, uh, Jesus took Peter, James and John and led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed and his clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than any bleach, earthly bleach could ever make them. Then Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking with Jesus. And Peter exclaimed, Rabbi, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He said this because he didn't really know what else to say, for they were all terrified. Peter is that friend of yours that they just put their foot in their mouth all the time. Verse 7. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. And suddenly when they looked around, Moses and Elijah were gone and they saw only Jesus with them. As they went back down the mountain, he told them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept it to themselves, but they often uh, asked each other what he meant by rising from the dead. Then they asked him, why do the teachers of religious law insist that Elijah must return before the Messiah comes? And Jesus responded, verse 12, Elijah is indeed coming first to get everything ready, yet why do the scriptures say that the Son of Man must suffer greatly and be treated with utter contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they chose to abuse him, just as the scriptures predicted. So it's understood that John the Baptist was the Elijah figure that had been kind of expected to come. He fulfilled that role, and he was executed by King Herod. Verse 14. When they returned to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd surrounding them, and some teachers of religious law were arguing with them. And when the crowd saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with awe, and they ran to greet him. What's all the arguing about, Jesus asked. And one of the men in the crowd spoke up and said, Teacher, I brought my son so you could heal him. He is possessed by an evil spirit that won't let him talk. And whenever this spirit seizes him, it throws him violently to the ground. And then he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast out the evil spirit, but they couldn't do it. And Jesus said to them, you faithless people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. And so they brought the boy. But when the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the child into a violent convulsion and he fell to the ground, writhing and foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening? Jesus asked the boy's father. He replied, since he was a little boy, the spirit often throws him into the fire or into water trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. Verse 23, what do you mean if I can, Jesus asked. Anything is possible if a person believes. 
I love that we sang about that in that song this morning. Verse 24, the father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the crowd of onlookers was growing, he rebuked the evil spirit. Listen, you spirit that makes this boy unable to hear and speak. I command you to come out of this child and never enter him again. And the spirit screamed and threw the boy into another violent convulsion and left him. The boy appeared to be dead. A murmur ran through the crowd, as people said. He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and helped him to his feet, and he stood up. And afterward, when Jesus was alone in the house with his disciples, they asked him, why couldn't we cast out the evil spirit? And Jesus replied, this kind can only be cast out by prayer. All right, let's be seated together. We thank the Lord for his word this morning. All right, so there's kind of, again, we're looking at two kind of episodes, but we're going to mash them up together. Uh, let's start with what's called the transfiguration, this sort of appearance of Jesus in, in a kind of brilliant glory of God. Some people have wondered if this episode's really true or if it was kind of added later to kind of magnify or kind of paint this sort of mythical picture of Jesus. It's more uh, mystical, larger than life than he, than he actually was. But that kind of myth theory is pretty easily debunked. Um, for a variety of reasons. You know, the details are really specific, what's what's laid out in there. It's set at a point in time. It says six days later, this happened. There's given a location. They went up this high mountain. Uh, verse uh, 2, you know, says that. Uh, also, the, the encounter is has so much detail with regards to kind of who's there. The three disciples, they're, they're named who's there. Uh, one or more of those, Peter, James, and John, could have been or probably was alive, probably, very likely all three of them, alive when this was written. Uh, and so they could have said, no, no, that's not what happened. Um, you can uh, look at the fact that, that all three of them saw Moses and saw Elijah and heard the voice from God. And uh, so that's not a hallucination. People don't hallucinate as a group. Uh, so you've got this kind of multiple layers of testimony and, and witness to it. So it is a mystical event. It is a fantastic event, but it's completely authentic and should be taken that way because of the... Um, the witness to it. But this episode points out, again, that Jesus had established these levels of kind of intimate kind of friendship uh, with his his disciples. Uh, you know, we're going to sing a song at the end of the service today that's a pretty kind of intimate song. And it, it, it's an indication that there is, we are invited to draw close to Jesus, but particularly Peter, James, and John uh, were the inner circle guys with Jesus. So they got to experience more than the others did, uh, that they also had more responsibility than the others uh, had. And Jesus knew that they were ready to witness this intense spiritual moment, even though they lacked the maturity yet to know what to do with it. There are times in your life that God's going to allow you to experience something and you you're a bit overwhelmed. You, you don't know kind of how to respond, but it is because the Lord's kind of drawing you into a greater level of intimacy with Him, even though the maturity is still kind of catching up to, to know what to do with it. Uh, and that's why you've got Peter just kind of blurting things out because he feels he needs to fill the space and doesn't know what else to do. And it's awkward and he's embarrassed and he can't just handle just being in awe of what God is was doing. I'm that guy, by the way. That's me. Uh, keep in mind that that they were processing this. Is it processing or processing? Processing, thanks. Um, 
No, seriously, I do have to check sometimes. Um, they were processing this incredible news that Jesus had given them that that uh, he was going to be arrested, you know, betrayed, killed, buried, raised alive. And they were still kind of grappling with that shocking news. Uh, and so this mountaintop experience, literally mountaintop experience, is a complete affirmation of who they've now recognized Jesus to be, the Messiah, the promised one of God. And appearing then with Moses, and Moses, right, represents the law given by God to God's people, and appearing with Elijah, and Elijah represents kind of all prophetic revelation of God to his people, appearing with those two is a total confirmation of Jesus, because, and again, this is key in Middle Eastern hospitality, and I I think any hospitality, that that Jesus doesn't go to them. They come to Jesus. The honor is given by who? By going to. So Aaron, if I were to visit your dorm room, right, at, at Cal Baptist, the honor would be on Aaron that I would come to visit him at his, at his, his place. That's kind of how it's kind of the indication. So they've come to Jesus effectively kind of submitting themselves or submitting to Jesus. And so it tells us, uh, you know, that Jesus is is supreme. Um, and I, again, maybe this is a little, I don't know, technical in terms of theology, but I, you just need to understand that that appearance confirms that Jesus, as Messiah, is greater than the law, and he is the full revel- he is the fulfillment of all, revel- all revealed prophecy. So he's greater than the law, he's the fulfillment of prophecy, and that's kind of the submission of Moses and Elijah appearing with him. And so we could say it this way. If you're taking notes today, you can write this down. This is about the most technical we get around here. The transfiguration affirmed the supremacy of Jesus. The transfiguration affirmed the supremacy of Jesus. That's why this happened. To show that, oh, Jesus is really above all. Now, Peter, James, and John, they're there, completely overwhelmed. Right? They're freaked out. I would be too. I think you would be as well. Peter, in his exuberance, you know, blurts out this ridiculous comment. Hey, let's build some tents. Let's build some shelters here. We're just all going to stay here on the mountain. This is great. Let's build some shelters here. This is going to be so fantastic. But that's dumb, right? Because this is obviously not a permanent situation. This is a, this is a moment of visitation. This is a moment in time and Peter just wants to stay in that spot and just hold on to it and just linger there as long as he can. He doesn't want to go back down the mountain. I get it. We want those sweet, intense times with Jesus to just be permanent. But here's the thing. You cannot hold on to what you cannot control, which is almost everything. There's really nothing you can control. So we can't hold on to those things over which we have no control. That's the glory and the presence of God. Now, Not only does that appearance of Elijah and Moses kind of affirm and confirm the supremacy of Jesus, it also, we have this moment here where Jesus receives the absolute affirmation of the Heavenly Father. His Father says, this is my dearly loved Son. Listen to Him. It's so crucial here. right? It's a benefit to the disciples, but it's a benefit to Jesus. Jesus, you know, He's soon to endure the stress and torment of the passion and of the cross and all that's going to happen and for Jesus to hear again. It, it tells us something about the humanity of Jesus to hear the affirming words of his father. And just as a sidebar to you parents, um, even 
parents of adult kids. Uh, as much as we think we've affirmed our kids, um, you can't really do that too much. Um, even I think adult kids just need to keep hearing, hey, good job. You're my son. I'm proud of you. I uh, love what you did there. Um, so for Jesus, hearing the this affirmation from God, his father, is the ultimate affirmation of his identity as the son of God. Now, you got this, so you got this picture, you got this scenario, they're on this mountaintop, you've got this cloud appearing. The disciples understood perfectly what was going on. Verse 7, right, says that the cloud overshadowed them. And for, for the Jewish people, this was a sign and symbol of God's presence. Remember, as they, a couple thousand years earlier, had been leaving Egypt, they were guided by what? A cloud by the day, a pillar of fire by night. So they understood that this is the guiding and protecting presence of God in their midst. When Solomon dedicates the temple some years, some centuries later, what happens? The, the presence of God is made manifest in the temple. The, 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 the glory of God in the form of a cloud is so thick that the priests can't even finish their duties. They have to, they have to get out of there. It's so heavy. So they understand this is a, this is a clear moment of God's, um, presence. Um, the manifest presence. It's the intensity of God's presence. And so, all that to say, that's kind of all the background. What I really want us to catch here is the value of a mountaintop experience. Now, these guys are literally on a mountaintop. I'm going to show you a couple of pictures. This is... Um, uh, so, when I was on sabbatical, Becky and I uh, were driving. This is way on the northern tip of Israel. So, actually... Uh, Herman is sort of sits at the juncture of Israel, Syria, and Lebanon, and uh, that's Mount Hermon, and it kind of supplies water for the the whole region, be the equivalent of our Sierras uh, here. And um, we got there just as they closed the gate. We we're going to try to get up to the ski lift and stuff, but uh, we were too late, and so um, we just kind of drove around to try to get a picture of it. And the clouds hung in there and hung in there. But there is a mountain behind there. Let's go to the next picture because the next day it was like this. Um, yeah, the very next day. But I wanted you to kind of get a sense of the landscape. So you've got the Galilee way off there. It's actually not as far as it looks. It's like here, you know, when it's all hazy in the summertime. Uh, that little white blip, that's Mount Hermon up there. And uh, this is a place called uh, Mount Arbel, where you can go on a ridiculous hike, um, dodging cow patties as you go. <laughs> anyway, that's good. We can go back to the other slide. Um, Here's the thing. While the so-called mountaintop experiences, and you, you know what I mean by that, um, a mountaintop experience is not our permanent spiritual dwelling place, but it's a great thing to experience. It's a really great gift from God. And I, I would just say one of the ch- challenges I would have for you in 2020 is to deliberately engage in or deliberately take advantage of some more intense, more intentional, more deliberate spiritual experiences, mountaintop experiences. Um, and I would say it's more available to us than it was even to them because the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost and the Holy Spirit lives and dwells uh, in our midst. And so your mountaintop experience could be the men's retreat coming in March, could be the women's retreat in October. You could seek out a, a conference that you want to attend for spiritual growth or a, um, maybe a, 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 you know, a, a workshop for marriage there's there's a grandparenting thing coming up at people's church there's information in your program about that um, maybe it's a worship conference I, I would just say 
it's okay to seek out that mountaintop experience with the Lord. Uh, it might be just a more intentional participation on Sundays. Just say, you know what, 2020, if I'm in town, I'm in church. I mean, that, that's just sort of that sense of like, I'm going to get to that place of engaging in worship. So I just want to soak it in. I want to enjoy it. Uh, I, I just want to take advantage of what God has for me so that I'm ready to go back down into the valley that is life in so many ways. Which is what happens for the disciples and for Jesus. Right? So they've got this intense, affirming, uh, Jesus-glorifying, mountaintop episode. And then they're right back down into the crush of the crowds and the needs and the pressure and just, oh, here we are again. Not only that, they step into this theological conflict that's happening. There, there's an argument going on between the disciples and some religious leaders and, and, um, I would just say the devil loves to use, you know, conflict and stress, especially amongst believers, loves using conflict to distract from the sweet fellowship of God's presence. And um, obviously we don't know what the argument was about. It had something to do with the disciples' inability to exercise the demon or demons from this, from this boy. And um, we're told that he can't speak, he can't hear, but also that he has these symptoms. And just kind of as a sidebar, I just want to make a comment. The boy's symptoms appear to be uh, something like a severe epilepsy, right? He's got the grand mal seizures, the spasticity, he's lost, loss of motor control. Uh, you know, it's just, that's the way it reads to us. And I, I just need feel like I need to say this. Epilepsy is a real condition, and so I don't want you saying, oh, someone who's got a, you know, a medical condition, they're demon-possessed. Nor do we want to say, oh, they didn't know what they were talking about back then. It wasn't really a demon. The guy just had epilepsy. The point is, Jesus healed him. I suppose there's a, there's a possibility that the way they understood it was demonic possession, but the evidence in the text is very much a demonic possession because Jesus approaches the boy and the the demon reacts to Jesus. So I'm just trying to separate those things out. The devil is not a creator. He's not creative. And so he mimics other things and can use symptoms of their illnesses to manifest harm and destruction. Remember that Jesus calls the devil the thief and he says the thief comes to steal, kill and destroy. And so what's the... What's the enemy doing to this boy? It's not simply that the boy's suffering under this ailment, this malady. He is, the devil is attempting to destroy him, to take his life or to cause harm to him. So you can imagine the boy's got some trauma. He's got probably some burns from being, it says literally he's been thrown in the fire and he's been thrown in water. The devil is trying to kill this boy for whatever reason. And so I just want us to understand that the horrible suffering of the boy is more than simply He's got a condition. He's got a, you know, he's, he's afflicted with epilepsy or something. It really is a kind of a demonic, um, manifestation in this boy's life for whatever reason. And the, so the, the dad, right, is desperate to find healing for his boy. Who wouldn't be? We, we just kind of like, ah, Jesus, what can you do here? And so that's why he comes to them. He comes looking for Jesus. Jesus is away. He comes to the disciples. And uh, the disciples had successfully healed people, successfully cast out demons. They'd had good ministry already in the different places they'd gone. But this one is too much for them. They can't handle it. They're overwhelmed. They've tried. They're not having any success. And uh, they're, they're, you know, Jesus now frustrated with them. 
how, you know, how long do I have to put up with this? Steps in and delivers the boy. But here's a great thing about this. The dad, he's got enough faith to bring his son to Jesus. Think about this. He has enough faith to say, I'm going to go to Jesus. And yet it's a partial faith. Verse 22, he says this, have mercy on us and help us if you can. Now, wait a second. You already made the effort of bringing your boy here to be healed. And now you're sort of backing away a little bit. Ever been in that moment where like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you get that like, I think, maybe, hopefully, if it's your will, right? Like we get those moments of like, we're all in. And then we're like, oh, but we just kind of hedge our bet a little bit. And sometimes desperation gets mixed up with doubt. And that's normal. You don't have to have perfect and complete faith to come to Jesus. This is where the good news lands. Some of you feel like, you know, I can't. I'm not all the way there. And this is telling us, look, start with the faith that you have. Start where you are. Because Jesus responds in the next verse, What do you mean if I can? Jesus asks, Anything is possible if a person believes. Unstoppable God, right? That was a great song this morning, by the way, you guys. The father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. And I have prayed that so many times. I believe, but I'm struggling with doubt. I have faith, but it's not all the way there. And uh, I just think that's important for us to understand that if you feel like you can relate to this dad, good, welcome to the club. Like, welcome to the club. Like, I think you and I can relate to that. Lord, I believe. Sort of. Lord, I believe. Mostly. Lord, I believe. I think. Right? We have this almost there. And yet, I just want to tell you, it's still faith. It is still faith. Faith enough to come to Jesus. And I just want to give you an encouragement. We could say it this way. Partial faith is still faith. Partial faith is still faith. And maybe your maybe your spouse or someone in your life is like you're frustrated with them because they don't like quite seem all in, but they're a little bit in. Be encouraging. Say they're it's the baby steps, it's the starting place, it's the Lord I believe, help my unbelief. It's the partial faith. Partial faith is still faith. And it it can grow. Obviously, God can work with that because Jesus responds to that. And some of us just feel like, no, I just I don't have enough faith. And you're thinking, like, I just need God to come through with this miracle, this person I've been praying for, for their salvation, or I'm struggling with doubt, I, I want to believe. The issue is that we tend to hold back with Jesus, and we don't want to come with an incomplete faith. We feel like it's a little bit of a failure where I'm, oh, Jesus, I think you'd want me to do better than this. And that's that's not good. And so it causes us to hold back. We don't go for prayer because, well, we feel like we're not worthy. Or we, we don't go to a prayer meeting like, you know, say next Sunday, second Sunday prayer. We think, well, I'm not really a very good Christian. If people knew what I was really like, you know, I don't, you know, they would, you know, they would judge me for that. I think all that's a wrong understanding. I think that's, that's not helpful at all. Uh, the dad does it right. Lord, I believe. Or, Lord, I'm trying to believe. Help me with the part I can't get to. And so even his approach is not a self-reliance. It's not, Lord, I believe mostly, but I'm trying hard. It's, Lord, I believe, 
And the, the part that's unbelief, Jesus, would you help me with that part? Notice he's not relying on himself. Notice he's not like kind of building his own like, Lord, I believe. I'm pretty good at this, Jesus. You give me some time, I'll get better. Lord, I believe. I'm asking for your help with the unbelief part. So it's a great posture in prayer and in our relationship with Jesus. And Jesus says, of course, well, when you've mustered up more faith, you know, come back and we'll see what we can do for the boy. No, that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, hey, anything's possible and bring the boy to me and he heals him. The partial faith is still faith. And I I would just say, don't let small shaky faith in your life keep you from approaching Jesus this year. Don't let that keep you from from pressing in and doing doing more with the Lord. Um, bring your faith, bring your needs such as they are, and uh, and and what's amazing is as you bring that, Jesus is going to help you trust Him more. He's going to grow your faith in you. Partial faith is still faith, but there is an issue in this passage, isn't there? Uh, the disciples could not cast out the demon. And even though they'd had success in other scenarios. So what's happening here? We should figure this one out as well. If you go to verses 28 and 29, he says this. Afterward, when Jesus was alone in the house with his disciples, they asked him, why couldn't we cast out that evil spirit? And Jesus replied, this kind can be cast out only by prayer. Uh, some uh, manuscripts will add um, by prayer and fasting. Uh, let's make a comment about that. As you're reading your Bible this year, occasionally you'll see like a footnote. Um, paper Bibles, honestly, are better for this than digital Bibles, although digital Bibles sometimes are good about this. Olive Tree is maybe my favorite app in terms of a more complete Bible reading software. But um, So what happens is the Bible was written not in English, right? It was written in Greek, and the New Testament is written in Greek mostly. And so... Uh, we go, we, we have, we don't have kind of the original copy that Mark wrote with his scribed into a piece of parchment. We don't have that. That doesn't exist. That's been lost to history. But we have copies and we have copies and we have copies and we have copies and copies and copies. And so what, what translators do, Bible interpreters and translators do, they'll take kind of more recent copies and they want to come bear back to as early a copy as possible for the sake of accuracy. You've ever heard about the Dead Sea Scrolls? Ever heard about the Dead Sea Scrolls? That's the Dead Sea Scrolls were so crucial because it allowed us to go back hundreds of years. In in this was Old Testament stuff, the prophets and so on. It allowed us to kind of suddenly leap back, time travel back to much much earlier copies of the of the Old Testament, and they were able to say, okay, this is what was in those jars hidden in a cave for a couple thousand years, and. This is what they wrote then. And what does our Bible say now? Like, oh, it's the same. It's pretty remarkable. So the copying procedure of the scriptures through history has been remarkably accurate. But there are occasionally edits or small minor additions. And so one edition over time somewhere, someone inserted, you know, I think Jesus meant to say, prayer and fasting. Or maybe someone say, you know, I was there or my great granddad was there and he said, Jesus said prayer and fasting. Or maybe in a different scenario, Jesus said, this comes out by prayer and fasting. We should add that in because Jesus did say that one time. Or I'm pretty sure Jesus would say that now if he was given the chance. Whatever. For some reason that gets added later. 
So I would, I don't, I'm not afraid of those things. We're actually going to have a big challenge with that when we get to the last chapter in Mark, because half the chapter is that. And so we'll deal with that um, around about Easter time. But I don't want you to be alarmed when you see that. It'll be a footnote saying, earliest and most um, reliable manuscripts do not include this. Or some later manuscripts will include this. Okay, is that clear? that helpful? All right, back to our regular program. It would appear, um, and that, it's not funny to think about, like before you could like record all your TV shows and skip through the commercials, like you actually could get your program interrupted and either lose part of it or pick up where it left off. It's hard to believe, you guys. It's hard to understand how that, how that happened, but anyway. It's new year. Better focus for 2020. That would be a good one. All right. So it would appear, here's the thing with these disciples. It would appear that they'd reached a certain level, I would say, of self-reliance or self-confidence in their ministry. And they forgot to pray up first. They're just like, hey, we can do this. We got this. And so there's sort of this, like, self-reliance. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus, even as the Son of God, fully man, fully God, Constantly spent time with his father in prayer. Constantly returned to his heavenly father. Receiving instructions from his father. Receiving affirmations from his father. Bringing concerns to the father. And so Jesus understood that spiritual power is a stream, not a pond. You know what I mean by that? A stream flows. A pond is just stagnant. A stream has life coming in and moving through. A pond is just sort of kind of dead water. And so uh, Jesus understood that... that that the spiritual life um, and spiritual power is a stream, not a pond. And this constant flow uh, of fellowship with the Father. And so, you know, Jesus got it, and he's trying to pass that on to his disciples. So if you're going to write this down, one more thing to write down today. Faith grows where prayer flows. A little rhymer today, a little, little rhyming one today, just for a bonus. Faith grows where prayer flows. It was not a prayer in the moment. It's not like Jesus said, okay, let's stop. And we're going to pray for an hour before we do this. He's ready to respond in the moment. Why? Because he's already prayed up. He's already prepared himself long before this encounter. And you, listen, you never know what you're going to, you don't know what the rest of today is going to look like, let alone the rest of the year. So every day we're just invited to prepare. You don't know, know what you're going to be up against on any given day. A, a situation a classmate's going through, a, 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 you know, a tough conversation at work, a, a family conflict or a family tragedy. And in each of those places, we want to bring hope and we want to bring healing. And we want to do that through the presence of Jesus. Um, we want to bring even deliverance if necessary. And it's all possible, but we're invited and challenged and taught by Jesus to prepare before we get there. Before we arrive at that moment. So faith grows where prayer flows. And uh, for those of us who are more like the dad, right? Wanting to believe but falling short. I think this is amazingly good news. I just think this is such good news. Faith grows where prayer flows. So as you bring everything to God, as you practice listening to what he's saying, you, as you find that he's trustworthy in his, in his promises to you, 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 you find that to be true whether or not you get the answers you're looking for. Whether or not God comes through with this, ah, oh, God, I have this need. I, I heard a little testimony about a, a woman kind of going through cancer and she said, this is my third time through. And, and every time, even though it hasn't gone the way I wanted to, I, each time I find that my hope is in the Lord. 
And he meets me at that place of need every time. I'm like, that's amazing testimony. And so you just find that as you bring those concerns, the Lord meets you in that place of need. I'm going to invite worship team. You guys come on back up. We've got one more song to lead us in. And I would just challenge you this. We're entering this season of 21 days of prayer and fasting. And, uh, you know, whether or not you've done any fasting before, whether or not you've, you, you've kind of done anything kind of to participate in this for, and, you know, we always kind of land on this right into the new year. So we haven't really get a lot of time to teach on it. But um, that little guide that's in your program today, there's two copies of that. Um, there's a little bit just basic, basic instruction on that about fasting in prayer. Um, but I would just say this in these 21 days, I would just challenge you to do something, just, just something to turn your attention daily to the Lord, just daily attention to him. So if it's fasting, it might be, um, you might say, I'm going to fast a meal a, a day, or you might say, I'm just, I'm not going to do chocolate or I'm not going to do coffee or I'm, you know, um, I'm going to fast Thursdays or or I'm going to you know I'm going to do nothing for 3 days I'm going to do a complete fast for 3 days whatever it is that's I would just say something in these 21 days to say God I'm going to give an additional intentional focus daily focus to you and to what you're accomplishing in my life because faith grows where prayer flows and I would just say just watch how the Lord begins to speak and move through that and uh, I want us to be um, like that dad who says, Lord, I believe, but I need you to help my unbelief. And watch watch that grow from there. So enjoy your mountaintops. Go look for them. Uh, the supremacy of Jesus is established. You know, re- we're reminded of the supremacy of Jesus on those mountaintop experiences. That's a great thing. Remember that even your partial faith, it's still faith. Don't beat yourself up. If you're not all the way there yet, none of us are there. None of us are perfect. And let, let faith grow uh, where prayer flows. Let's pray together. God, I want to thank you for uh, all that you have in store in this year to come. And uh, Lord, even as now, as we just, as we just turn our, our, bring our worship to you one more time together, or as we sing a song that's, that's sweet, it's intimate, it's very personal with you. Lord, I ask that that would just become the prayer of our hearts. Lord, to be people who would seek you in this year and not be afraid to draw close. Uh, just the way I think about Peter, James, and John, how how intimate, how close they were with you, Jesus. How just kind of right in that inner circle. And Lord, we, we want to be there too. So we thank you for that. Pray that we would just see faith growing in our own lives as we turn our attention to you, particularly in these next three weeks. We thank you for that. You're so good to us. We give you our praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.